Well, good morning, everyone, here in the worship center. Um, if you're listening online, thank you for joining us. We're continuing our series today called Kingdom, the Story. Uh, we're talking about the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And most of us in this room will be familiar with probably many parts of it. But we're looking at it to connect the dots because we're saying there is one unified story from beginning to end. And it leads us, no surprise, spoiler alert, to the person of Jesus Christ. And to know Jesus better is to know his story better. And this helps us to, to know the most influential person who has ever lived on the earth. And his name is Jesus. We want to know his story uh, we really encourage people here at Central Heights to get involved in a, in a group of some sort. We have threes and fours. We have small groups of eight to 12 people. We have mid-sized community groups. I'm in a mid-sized community group, uh, 20 to 30 people. And one of the things we've done over the years is have people, one or two people, take five or 10 minutes to share their story with us. And it's amazing because some of the people you think, oh, I know them really well. But when they share their story and they get into a little more depth of it, you go, huh, Wow, that was really revealing. Like, I had no idea, um, you know, this fact about you, this, this part of your history. Like, you drove stock cars once. Wow, that's amazing. You play violin? I had no idea. How crazy is that? Um, you lived in Australia. I mean, <clears throat> you were once 20 years old, but you're 75 now. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that was possible. Um, those kind of things. You, you suffered that accident. You went through that horrific event, and here you are with a smile on your face. Um, you've got... Like you managed a lumberyard and you managed a video company and a, like, wow, I never knew this about you. You've done so many things in your life. What experience. You know someone so much better when you hear their story. That's my point. Do you want to know Jesus better? Well, maybe it's good to really look at his story from beginning to end because we said last week to understand the New Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament. And we'll have a greater understanding of the life and the work and the person of Jesus Christ if we understand the story that leads up to his coming. He was a Jew, so Jesus was immersed into the Old Testament story. He lived by that. In the desert, when he was tempted, he overcame temptation by his knowledge of the story that he, was, that he came out of. He, he's, he's part of the story. He fulfills the story. He expands on the story. So don't you want to know Jesus better? And if we want that, then let's look at his history. As we look into the Old Testament today, take your Bibles, and we're going to look at the the prophet of Zechariah, if you go to Zechariah chapter 1. So if you haven't been with us in this series, let me do a short recap. We began in Genesis, and we've seen so far the people you sort of need to know. There's so many, but the ones you need to know would be Adam and Eve, um, Abraham, Moses, King David, um, Nezra, Nehemiah. The scenes of those people, it began with creation. We called that kingdom pattern. Uh, that was with Adam and Eve, and then, you know, they disobeyed God, and so there was kingdom perished. Some people refer to it as the fall of man. But that was not the end of the story for the human race. God chooses not to give up on humankind, and he chooses a man and his family by the name of Abraham, and he comes to him with a promise. And so we saw a kingdom promise, and that God's plan was to rescue the world through this person, the family, and ultimately the nation. And we've seen that that nation was grounded in Egypt for 400 years. And then through Moses, they experienced this exodus. And, and God brings them to a promised land. And there's this, con 
first conquest of the land. And eventually it leads to leaders who are kings and ultimately to King David, the great king, and his son Solomon. But as we get to all of that, and that's all we've covered, it's still a kingdom partial. It's not its fullest yet. It's just part of it. And it's partial as we've seen God's people rebel against him further so that David and Solomon, what follows them, are kingships of of division. And the kingdom itself is divided. And people are divided in their allegiance to God. So much so that after repeated warnings, they are taken into exile. They're actually conquered. And like refugees taken out of their country and brought to Babylon. And then after 70 years... Um, they, are, they return, some of the, of the exiles return back to their homeland as we saw in a previous series with Nehemiah. The kingdom is still partial. And that's where we've gotten to in the story. And as all of this is going on, the Old Testament gives us this historic storyline. But it also gives us God's heavenly perspective into that storyline as it's going on through his prophets. These were men who were chosen to speak God's word to his people throughout history. And the the prophets who wrote and the writings are recorded especially began during the kings with Isaiah and then Ezekiel um, and reaching through all the, the minor prophets. So the major prophets are those who wrote the largest works. It's not that they were more important. Then you got the minor prophets who wrote shorter works. But you have these these groups of writings of the prophets. And if you want to understand the historical drama, there's so much to read about their editorial comment on history at that time. And so even the Old Testament, how it's organized in the Jewish Bible, it's called the Tanakh. And uh, Tanakh stands, uh, it comes from the three words, Torah, Nevihim, and the Kuthubim. The Torah is the teachings, the instruction of God, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books in the Bible. And then in the Hebrew Bible, it's organized after that with prophets. So all these writings. And then you've got the writings, which are Lamentations, Psalms, Proverbs, Daniel, and, and, and ending with Second Chronicles. That's actually what the, old, the Hebrew Old Testament Bible ends with. But you can see there's a major section there that has to do with the prophets, And what God would speak to his people through them. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Kingdom prophesied. And as we do that, we're going to look at just one prophet. One of the minor prophets, Zechariah. He appears towards the end of the Old Testament history. The return of the exiles. And as we look at him, we're going to see a theme of all the prophets. Which is that they are speaking God's word to his people in three ways. To give hope. To give encouragement but also to give warning. And we're going to start there. If you take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 1. September 11th, 2001. Most of us, if we were alive and old enough, uh, will remember exactly where we were on that tragic day. On that tragic day, Cyril Richard Rick Rescorla was head of security for a company who did their business out of the World Trade Center Tower Number 1. At 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time that day, his tower was struck by American Airlines Flight Number 11, and out of his window he could see the smoke and some of the flames. Time stands still in in an event such like that, but eventually over the PA system came a message from the Port Authority urging people to stay put where they were in their offices. 
Now, maybe it was his military training, but Rescorla instinctively knew that that would not be the right thing to do, and he began to sound a different message. He took all the things he had at his disposal. He had a cell phone. He had a walkie-talkie. He even had a bullhorn. And he began to call out the people of his company, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, to evacuate. You see, Rescorla had anticipated that this might actually happen someday. He felt that the tower was at risk for a terrorist attack. And he had done previous evacuations, test evacuations with some of his employees. And so he called this out to his people. He urged them to evacuate and he led them. And it said that he successfully led almost every person in his company, almost 3,000 employees, to safety His story is a picture of the role of a prophet to sound out a contrary voice, sometimes of hope, sometimes of encouragement, but sometimes of warning. We read in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, these words. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, the Lord was very angry with your father's. So we have seen the the beginning of the biblical story, how God created humankind, Adam and Eve, to live in a beautiful garden and to live under the realm of his blessing. And God gave them all the freedom except for one thing, that they should not eat of a certain tree. Adam and Eve thought better, so we know the story. They rebelled, and this leads to to a continual pattern in humanity of rebellion against God that leads to self-destruction and brokenness and curse. In the beginning, their man's choice leads to so much wrong and so much evil that God could have given up on them, but he doesn't. And he chooses a man and his family, Abraham. And he chooses to rescue the world through them. But for the most part, even in their story, it's filled with rebellion against God. And this puts God's people in danger. Not just brokenness with each other, not just brokenness with the the terrain, with the earth, but brokenness in danger with God himself. Zechariah writes, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. As we were worshiping, Jaden had us look at Psalm chapter 95, and in one of those verses it says that in his hand, in God's hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. Think of Mount Everest, one of the largest, highest mountains in our world. It's beautiful on a sunny sunny day. It's majestic. It's awesome. But you have to know that you have to respect that mountain. You have to know how to relate to it. You cannot treat it with contempt if you're going to scale it. There are monstrous crevices. There are slippery, steep, narrow passages. The air gets thin and minimal. There are methods and ways that you have to follow in order to stay alive and to enjoy all that a climb up that mountain would involve. And that's just a small piece of God's creation. How much more do we need to live in a right relationship with God and to experience the beauty of his holiness and the distinctiveness that is all about him See, on Everett, you can fail to acclimatize. You cannot set your ropes properly. uh, You can try to go too fast. And all these things will immediately put yourself at risk. And as the prophets are speaking on behalf of God, they are speaking to God's people at times to warn them that they are doing things that are putting themselves at risk in their relationship with God. They're putting themselves in danger. In particular, three areas that the prophets repeatedly talk about idolatry, independence, 
and injustice. Idolatry is simply the worship of another being. It's giving place to something that only God, that one true God himself should have. See, God is not a dysfunctional God. God wants all of our affections. He wants all of our hearts. He wants us. He's jealous for us. And that is such a good thing. We know that instinctively. So girls, if you have a guy that, you know, you're, you're really interested in, but he's not all that into you, you are just a convenience to him. He's got other pursuits. You know, he's got his sports. He's got his friends. He's into gaming. He's pursuing you like a slug. That's just not a good thing if you're a girl who likes him. Or you're in a marriage, and as a husband, your wife comes to you, and she says, you know what, I'm going to be faithful to you on the weekdays, but on the weekends, yeah, I just want to explore a little bit. Well, that would be so dysfunctional. See, that's not how we live. That's not right. We understand there are relationships that deserve all of us. God is committed to us. We've seen that. And he wants you to be committed to him. That's what a good, right relationship looks like. So in Old Testament, idolatry is so often referred to as spiritual adultery, looking to a different God, someone other than the one true God for protection, for security, for satisfaction, And in that light, you can see how easily that translates to our context today, that we might look to someone or something to supply those things for us. Protection, security, comfort, satisfaction. Ultimately leading us to a place where we're not in a right relationship with God. And we can ask ourselves, do I have an idol in my life? Does God have all of my affections? We can just examine where do, we, where do we spend our time? What do we worry about? What are we angry about? What are we thinking about all the time? God wants it to be him. So he sends his prophets and they speak a word of warning about idolatry. Idolatry takes different shapes and forms but they have been and are everywhere. Times past, times present. And the prophets warn, not in a nice, polite Canadian way. So if you're reading the Old Testament, you're not going to hear a prophet talk in Canadian language. You know, like, I might suggest that perhaps maybe you possibly, you know, if you think about it, if you're in the right place of mind and frame of reference, you might want to change your direction. That is not how an Old Testament prophet speaks. You see, Sometimes you have this idea that God would never confront his people in an abrupt sort of way. But you read the Old Testament and they do. And I think I understand why. You see, as a parent, if you've left something dangerous in your living room, let's say you've left a, a, a container of paint in a cup because you're doing some touch-ups, touch-ups in your living room and you walk into the living room and you see your little child just about to take that little cup and drink it because he thinks it's something nice to drink, you're not in that moment going to go... Son, I, daddy's not angry, but you might want to maybe not drink that because it's not good for you. We wouldn't talk like that in that moment. What are you going to do? You're going to scream. You're going to yell. You're going to say, Stop it! Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. You're in danger. So we need to see that the warnings that we read in the Old Testament, and there's so many of them through God's prophets, are motivated by God's love because he doesn't want people to live in brokenness and destruction with each other, with the earth, and most importantly with him. He wants things to be right. So he sends his prophet to speak a word of warning 
around idolatry, around independence. This is amazing to me. That the God who created the world, who has no need for us, actually through his prophets repeatedly tells his people, look to me, bother me, come to me for your needs. Let me be the source. Let me be your provider. Let me be your protection. Like that to me is absolutely amazing because God is the one who created the world. He understands everything. He is all wise. He knows how everything works. He knows what's absolutely best for you. He's all powerful. He can make things happen that you can't. He can turn people's hearts. He can change circumstances. And that person, God, is saying, come to me. Look to me. I'm the one. Depend on me. Amazing. How foolish would it be for me to go, nah, thanks God. My neighbor Billy, you know, beer drinking Billy, he's a pretty smart guy. I'm going to depend on him. Or, nah, thanks God, I got this. I got a degree in computer science in 2005. Pretty smart. I got this. I'm going to take care of it. That's foolish. You see how foolish that is? When the creator of the universe is saying, look to me, depend on me, come to me. Don't live independently of me. Amazing. Idolatry, independence, lastly, injustice. It's amazing that God wants us to be his true love. Amazing to me that God wants to be our source of everything. And it's amazing to me how he, God cares for the well-being of our whole society. We read in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4, these words. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? That's what the people were doing before they returned from exile. They would spend times in prayer, spend times in fasting. Verse 6, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? In our relationship with God, God is not looking for religiosity. He's not looking for people to go through and check the boxes in their relationship to him. And sometimes that can even be something that looks so spiritual as fasting and prayer. But God wants, through our relationship with him, the love that we experience and the good and the blessing that we experience from him to spill out of our lives in relationship to one another. And especially to those in our community who need it. Zechariah writes in verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Remember the call of Abraham when God said to him, I'm going to bless you. But it didn't end there. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. You see, the goodness that we receive from God is to come into his people and then flow out of their people to be a blessing to the world, especially to those who are disadvantaged, to those who are marginalized. And in so doing, all of society moves to better health. Idolatry, independence, injustice. We get out of alignment here and you endanger the good that God wants for you and for your world. So in an act of mercy, God sends his prophets who speak a contrary voice and say, stop, don't live that way, go this way. And as I'm talking, maybe even in your own heart, you're, you're recognizing, yeah, you know, I'm not really caring for the poor, I'm, or I'm, you know, I'm not really looking to God in my life, or I've got my affections all over the place, and God's certainly not the one place that I'm giving my full 
devotion and attention. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God at all. And this is the amazing thing about God. And this is why we talk about good news. Because God is always merciful. He's always gracious. And he just wants things to be made right between us and him. So we read in Zechariah chapter 1, in verse 2, Yes, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. But look what he says after that. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Do you get that? Yes, you've messed up. Yes, you've, you know, you rebelled against me. Yes, everything was wrong and broken. And yes, you had to experience some difficulty, even at my judgment. But just return to me. If you've messed up, well, just come back. It's okay, we'll start over. And I will, God says, I will return to you. God doesn't say, I'm going to think about it. I'll, I'll see, I'll see how much you wallow in it. God says, no, just return to me. Just come back, just make that change. And I will return to you. And our relationship will be reestablished. See, God is just looking for repentance. A turning in our thinking, a turning in our actions so Zechariah writes on, Do not be like your fathers to whom the fo- former prophets cried out. And it says later in verse 6, So they repented and said, As the Lord God of hosts purposed to deal with, with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Maybe here this morning and there's a stirring in your heart to make things right with God because you're not in a right place with him now. Today that, that can be all rectified because, because God is just saying, just come back. Just come back. Let's... Let's make it right. Kingdom prophesied there is warning. I think we all need to be aware that we don't want to get to that place where we're putting ourselves in danger. And there are ways of living that are not safe. But I can tell you right now as I stand here this morning, I'm not shaking in my boots. I'm not trembling that I might have done something wrong in my relationship with God and feeling that I'm going to be judged at any moment. I'm not in that place. And you don't need to be in that place either. See, if we're not flirting at the edges, you know what that means? If we're not compromising and we're way out there, flirting with the edges, doing things that we know are wrong, but we're presuming on God's grace. If we're not flirting in those edges purposefully, intentionally, if we're not walking away from God while he's calling out to us and we're saying, no, I don't want you right now. If we're not in those places, then God's word doesn't come to us with the word of warning because we're not in that place where we're close to to destruction. No, because we're walking towards him. God's word comes with encouragement. So Zechariah was a prophet to the returning exiles. It's right at the end of, we get to the end of the Old Testament story and the the exiles had returned to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. We've talked about this. They were on God's mission, but as they're on this mission, they begin to get discouraged. See, they ran into opposition, people criticizing them, threatening them. And we also discover that they got distracted And so they actually stopped building the temple for about 16 years. They'd laid its foundation and then stopped for 16 years. And they were making excuses. Oh, it's not the right time. No, no, it's not good. It's not good. Opposition, uh, time, yeah, it's just not the right time. And yet they had time to build their own houses. So in his mercy, in his grace... God sends his spokesperson, the prophets, 
Haggai and Zechariah, and they provide a contrary voice. Yes, it is time to build. Yes, you must build. Yes, you can do it. We read in Ezra chapter 5 these words, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, those are two key leaders, they arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets were there with them, supporting them. You get the picture? The prophets stimulated them with encouragement to get on with the mission of God. And they were there supporting them with God's word. Zechariah writes in his first chapter later in verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Encouragement. When I was growing up, um, I lived in a family that, you know, we church life was part of what we did, but in that, you know, um, there are certain adults that just come along and they encourage you. And it helps shapes your future by that encouragement. It's so powerful. It puts wind in your sails. How much more powerful when God speaks a direct word of encouragement to his people through a prophet my city shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion. He will again choose Jerusalem. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged in your calling. You're discouraged in the work of, you know, what, where, you're, where you are, you know, and what you've done. And you've, you've stopped. You've stopped building for God, with God. You've just stopped. May the Spirit of the Lord encourage you again this morning with the word of encouragement. Yes, you can. Yes, you shall. You shall be prosperous. You shall have fruit. You shall, you shall. Why? Because it will be of your own strength? No. Later, Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Even something that looked like this huge mountain of, of opposition and, and work becomes a, a level plane in the eyes of God when his spirit is at work. Through Zechariah, God declares these people are the apple of his eye and that the house shall surely be built. In chapter 4, Zechariah, who, who writes a lot of crazy things, he gets these visions and he, he gets a vision of a, a golden lampstand with two olive trees. And remember, there were two key leaders. So he writes this in Zechariah 4, verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, like, what are these, my Lord? These two, two um, olive trees and this golden lampstand. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know who these are? I said, no. No, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward to the, the stone to amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. The hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What a word of encouragement. 
You know, at Central Heights, we believe that the spiritual gifts that God gives to his church are still in operation today. And so we have people in, in our midst that have this, um, have what we call a prophetic gift where God can speak to them and on behalf of other people. And, and out of that, they'll speak a word of encouragement to them. And when you receive something like that and you just really witness with it, like, like this is God speaking through that person. It is such a gift. It builds up. It encourages. It's so beautiful. And I think that's so good. But we also need to see that there are many words in God's word that are absolute words of encouragement written by the pen of the Holy Spirit that are there for us for, to take to the bank every day of the week. There for us. Unshakable words of encouragement. Are you on the mission of God? Are you on the Great Commission? Then Jesus said, all authority is given to me, so go, going, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Are you troubled by a situation? Don't you know what you can do with that? God's word says to you these words of encouragement, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition. Take these things to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a word of encouragement for those of you that are troubled. That's there for you to take to the bank today, in this week, in this moment, now. God's word comes and it does that. It warns, but it encourages. It also gives great hope. So Zechariah's word, encouraging. But as he gives these encouraging words, he also speaks words that are of great hope. And some of that hope is of future expectation. It's not just for the present, it's for the future. So you see, some of Zechariah's words, as Isaiah, as Ezekiel, as, as so many of the prophets, their words are spoken and, it, and they were applicable into the moment that the people were living in, to their day at that time. But some of their words were for a future time, to place a future hope in their people. And so many of what we read in the Old Testament prophets land in Jesus and so become, become applicable to our lives here, today, and now. But some of it doesn't. Some of it lands with us in the age we're in, but some of it is yet to come. So we read in, in Zechariah these amazing words. Verse, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Was this word for them? In their day, in their time, other prophets spoke of the coming king, the ruler who would be of the line of David, of his government. There would be, you know, no end. It would increase and be no end. It would be a perfect rule. Is this going to happen now in their time as the exiles return to Jerusalem? Will it happen now? Martin Luther King Jr. in August of 1963, you, you, you've probably heard parts of his speech and seen pictures of you know, the throngs of people that were there because he spoke of a vision. He spoke of a future that he envisioned. And one of his lines was that, I dream, I have a dream, and I dream of a day when my four children will live in a nation where they're not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And as he painted this vision, people were moved to begin to think with hope and anticipation and to begin to live differently. This is what the prophets are doing. They're, they're painting a picture not just of the present but of a preferred future that God is surely going to bring about. And it should cause his people to live with anticipation 
and to change how they live now as they live in hope. Zechariah gives another word in chapter 2. He says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And it will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So amazing, this picture of Jerusalem. But it's not for the now. For the day of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people that lived when they heard these words fresh from Zechariah, it's not for them for the now. And so as we read the Old Testament and even as the exiled people come back to their homeland and they're thinking, is this the time? Will the messianic king, the son of David, be put on his throne? Is this the time when, when Jerusalem will again be fully reestablished and, and God will dwell in it and glory and all the nations will run into it? Is this the time? And Nehemiah and Malachi end with a downward sort of whimper because it's not because God had something more to come it's leading everybody who reads the story to that point to, point to anticipate to long for to yearn for more the king would come and his name is Jesus you see as we as we read these words and we see them we begin to realize how privileged we are as New Testament believers who live after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that so many of the things that were prophesied to people in the past have now come to fruition in this person, the Messianic King, who did ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, who did become the shepherd that was rejected for 30 pieces of silver, as Zechariah also talks about to become the shepherd who has been slaughtered, to become the one who, as Zechariah wrote about, in one day would wipe clean the sin of a nation, in fact, all the world, when he would go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind. So much that we live in, so much privilege, and yet, as it was for them, it is for us that not everything has been fulfilled. Death still exists, Creation is still in agony, suffering the effects of the fall. Injustices still occur, and that glorious city of all of God's people has not yet come into the place where God dwells within them, and there's no moon, there's no sun, there's no, no body of light needed because the sun dwells in their midst, shining in his glory. That is yet to come. So we too have a life to live, knowing that God is still at work in us and in his story, preparing us for the best that is yet ahead of us. God wants you to know that the best of what you have experienced here today in this life is but a small taste of what is to come. And everyone, John writes, who has this hope lives differently. We walk with Jesus, with his presence in this life, and we walk with him as he prepares us to meet him, the King of Kings, face to face, and live with him forever when all that he's written through his prophets 
will one day be fulfilled in the kingdom story. So as we've looked at this this morning, I hope that your heart is filled with hope. I hope that your heart is encouraged. And if you're here today and you feel like you needed to be warned, let me remind you that God just wants you to return. And I'm going to lead us in prayer that we can all pray together that will simply ask God to take that rightful place in our lives where he is sitting on the throne, where he is king of everything that we are about and everything that we live for. If you're here today and you don't have that relationship with God, he's not the king of your life, he never has been, then I invite you to join with me as I say that prayer and just agree with it. And as you do that, know that God's saying, this is what I want. I want to be in a right relationship with you. And that can begin today. If you're here today and you know you've been walking away from God, you've been saying no to him, just know that he just wants you to return. You don't have to get your life in order before you can come back to him. He just says, just return. Just do it. Just turn your heart. Turn your mind. Come back. I'm here. I'm waiting for you with arms open wide. Just return. As I say, as I pray, you can join me in prayer and you can say, yes, God, that's what I want. I want you to be king. And all of us can pray this together if it's the expression of your heart. I invite you to stand with me as I pray and then we're going to respond in a song of worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you and God, we just want to acknowledge you as most awesome God, the one and true only God. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your promised servant, your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is and always will be the hope that we have, the fulfillment of all that we could ask, think, or imagine, all that we could dream about, Lord, we know is found in you and through your son, Jesus And so today, God, we just want to say we're sorry if there's any place in our life where we have not given you the right to rule. Let there be nothing in our hearts and in our minds and our activities that does not demonstrate that you are the king. And today we ask you to be exactly that. Be king over our lives. And then live through us, empowering us by your Holy Spirit as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.